episode 292 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot to Pilot podcast is brought to you by Learn the Finer Points. Use the link below to save 10% off their ground school app. Aviation, there's a new offer from SiriusXM. Make sure you upgrade your next flight without upgrading your plane by getting the Garmin GDL52 portable receiver. The GDL52 has ADSB traffic and weather plus SiriusXM weather and entertainment. It has Bluetooth and works with Garmin Pilot apps. For a limited time, you can get a $300 rebate on the GDL52 plus it comes with a free three-month trial of SiriusXM's weather and entertainment. I love flying with SiriusXM and it's honestly one of my favorite features about having the G5000, so the GDL52 will offer you a very similar outlook on the weather and also getting to listen to some awesome radio stations on SiriusXM. So check out the GDL52 at aopa.org slash SiriusXM. What's up guys, I'm Alexander Rossi, driver of the number seven IndyCar for Aero McLaren. Um, I've been racing for 22 years now and became a pilot three years ago. Aviation Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Today is a great episode. I had the great pleasure to interview Alexander Rossi, who is an Indy 500 champion and F1 driver. He's won multiple championships, including the Formula BMW World Champion and was multiple national and international karting championships. Now, when you get the opportunity to interview someone that has so many accomplishments like that, uh, we can't just talk aviation. We got to talk everything. So this episode uh, is half his life, half of flying in his life. So it was really cool to kind of hear how he kind of grew up, how racing came to be, how he progressed in the racing career, and then how 2020 came along. He's like, you know, I've always wanted to be a pilot. I've got some free time. Let's make it happen. Uh, So it was really cool to hear that story. And it's really cool to see race car drivers become pilots or athletes become pilots. And it's something that uh, I have a passion for sharing those stories. So if there's anyone else listening to this that's an athlete or a driver, if you want to come to the podcast, hit me up. Let's make it happen. So uh, I love seeing it. Um, Alex was awesome on the podcast. He was very candid in everything he was talking about. And you can just tell how much he loves aviation and how this is something that he has wanted to do and that this is something that he's going to continue to do even after racing is done. So Alex, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it, man. Uh, it was a lot of fun talking with you and we look forward to this episode. It's going to be a great one. So Aviation, I hope you enjoy this. If you do, you can like the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram. You can take your best friend's phone if they're sitting next to you and make sure you subscribe to the Pilot the Pilot podcast because who knows, they might listen to it become a pilot as well. Check out the bold aviator pilot the pilot hat with a link below. Uh, you're not going to miss that hat. I don't think there's many left, so go ahead and get one while you can. Aviation, that's all I got for you right now. So without any further ado, here's Alexander Rossi. Alex, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, no time. It's uh, no problem. It's awesome having uh, a race car driver on talking about aviation. I was talking with Lauren beforehand about how there's a lot of similarities kind of in the mindset of uh, a race car driver and being a pilot. You know, you kind of, a lot of times you're the only one in, in both of those cockpits and you're, you're making all the decisions uh, with some input from some people in some cases. But uh, it's really cool to see kind of the two worlds come together. So I'm excited to share your story and kind of dig deep into why you chose aviation and if it was always kind of in the background of your mind and like, man, I got to do this. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it makes a lot of sense to people initially when you talk about the similarities, right? Because it's both machines with, you know, very small to no margin for error and, um, you know, a lot of human decision-making that, that goes into it. But certainly beginning kind of my aviation journey was a surprise um, in a lot of aspects because, you know, growing up in motorsports, your your risk, I guess, assessment and your comfort with risk kind of increases throughout you're growing up and everything. And as you get into quicker cars and, um, I also was a skier kind of growing up in, in Northern California. So I was always kind of used to, to that side of life, if you will. Um, and then getting into an airplane for the first time very quickly humbled me and brought me back down a little bit, which I think is a good thing. And it's, it's something that, you know, I'm still relatively new, but three years into it, treat it with a huge amount of respect just because it's, I tell people, you know, I feel like flying and probably, you know, scuba diving are the, are the few things in life where you can't learn from mistakes or at least, or at least very big mistakes. Right. Uh, usually you learn from other people's mistakes, which Correct. unfortunately is a bad thing. Like something drastic yeah. happened, lives have been lost and you kind of read that and you're like, all right, well, we're not going to do that. Um, so yeah, there's, I, I would agree. Those are probably two things you don't want to learn from mistakes and positive learning. You want to learn the correct way, the right way. Uh, and that's why they always preach kind of when you have that CFI, the first CFI you have is so instrumental in who you're going to be as a pilot as you go on, like 20 years later, because they're the ones that once shit hits the fan, <laughs> you're going to remember what they taught you and how to do this emergency, how to do this training. So uh, it's very important to have the right instructor for the first time you go out and fly. Yeah, no, absolutely. I actually had uh, an older gentleman, which in a lot of ways in the beginning was a little bit annoying, right? Because it was so on the side of, you know, risk being risk adverse and, you know, being well within kind of these limits, which was, which was good to a certain aspect. But then when I had a different CFI, um, who was helping me kind of get, um, time in, in the plane I ended up buying, um, he was a younger guy. So he was a little bit more on the side of, he wanted you to experience things for the first time with him versus, my first instructor was very much like, I never want you to experience any of it type of thing. So finding that balance, I think is, is also very interesting because certainly, you know, the first time, for example, like I went into kind of icing conditions, right? Like I had an instructor with me and it would have been a very different experience had I'd been doing it by myself post getting my instrument rating and all that sort of thing. So it is, it is interesting that you say that. Um, and I was fortunate to kind of have both ends of the spectrum. I feel like, um, so far throughout my learning process. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough line to walk, right? Like as an instructor, you don't want to give someone too much, especially too soon. Um, and if you, you show them to bad things, maybe it leads to you thinking kind of like a false hope of security where it's like, all right, well, we survived this. So I'll keep going that. Like, it's not that bad. I can get through it. Uh, but if you, I can also see on the other side where it's like, well, you're going to get an ice, you're going to get into a cloud, you're going to do something stupid, right? It's like, why don't we experience it first together to where right. we have two people and I can help save you yeah, <laughs> rather than exactly. just get in a bad situation. So um, I think that's kind of the beauty of instructors, right? You can have so many different kinds uh, and it just goes to show that one instructor for your whole career isn't always a good thing. Uh, it's good to have right. multiple people, multiple eyes, multiple kind of viewpoints on how to fly and kind of theory of their theory of how to be a safe pilot. Because a lot of people have different theories about how to be a safe pilot. And you take something from all of them and you become your own safe pilot, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, 100%. It's, um, it is something that... 
I don't, I, I've, I've asked people like uh, friends who are, you know, commercial pilots, um, friends who have flown in the military. It's like, do you ever, do you ever get over that little bit of anxiety that you have kind of every time? And they're like, no, because you should, you shouldn't. Right. Um, because that's when, you know, complacency could potentially set in, but it is a very weird thing. Cause you know, I, I drive race cars obviously, and, and have been doing it for a long time and, and you don't get nervous about the, you don't really get anxious or nervous before a race in terms of like the concern of you making a mistake or getting hurt or anything. You're more anxious about like the end result, like what's going to happen today that's out of my control that's going to affect, you know, the outcome of, you know, this weekend. Whereas flying, it's still, I mean, I'm obviously still early on, but it's, it's still like the little bit of anxiety of like the pressure of not making a mistake and not, not doing anything, you know, that I don't feel comfortable with. And it's, it's always, it's always weird because people talk about how, you know, so often incidents are not made up of the one mistake, right? It's the compounding effect of these very small things that end up adding up to having massive consequences. And it's always trying to define like, okay, where is that, where's that first step on the wrong side of that line that could potentially snowball and, and still trying to find, you know, your personal limits with that and everything is, is an interesting journey and, and something that um, goes well beyond just the, the mechanics of, of flying the airplane, which ultimately I think is, is the easiest part. Oh, for sure. When everything goes right, right? Right, right. exactly. <laughs> something goes wrong, but yeah. yeah. Uh, you brought up a good point when you're talking about like race car driving. Like it's, uh, you prepare for what you can control and it's the things that you can't control that are kind of like up in the air. Same thing in a plane. Like you prepare so much, but you don't know what's going to happen, what failure could occur uh, or what you could be faced with. And it's just adversity, right? You, you figure it out and you go back to your training. And I'm sure it's similar to driving a car. It's like, whether you've seen the situation before, like early on in your racing career or whether it's something you read about or watched and watch film and all that kind of stuff. So it's, uh, you prepare as much as you can and you hope that you can handle the situation when it pops up. For sure. And I, you know, you have to, um, the, the only difference I'd say is if like there's a problem with the car, you have the option of, you know, hitting, <laughs> yeah. um, no, obviously a plane, a plane, you got to figure it out. I mean, you got to yeah. solve, you got to solve the problem, which is, which is part of the, what's amazing about it. And ultimately, um, I think, you know, from, uh, people always ask, so what made you fall in love with motorsports? Right. And it's yes. Driving the cars are cool. Um, going fast is great. The competition obviously, but it's, it's this pursuit of chasing a, a perfect lap, right. That ultimately doesn't exist. You know, you can always look back on a, on a lap and qualifying or a race or whatever, and, and find areas where you could have, you know, extracted more, um, kind of performance from either the car or yourself or, or what have you. And it's, it's a very similar thing in flying, right? Like you, you can have very successful flights all the time, but you can always look back on something or it's like, I probably could have done that a little bit better, or I probably, you know, could have, could have improved on, you know, the, the decision-making that I made there. And I think that, you know, again, the mentality of, of motorsports and aviation, there, there's so many crossovers that um, people don't realize quite away, quite in the beginning right away. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of interesting what you talked about. Uh, when I played, I mean, I didn't play like as high level as you. I made it to Ohio State playing football, but I didn't get quite good into the pros. But yeah. they always said the eye in the sky never lies. So you think you have a great practice. You think you have a great game, but it's never as good as you think it is. And it's never as bad as you think it is. And it's kind of similar to flying when that goes like that for sure for sure yeah all right so let's talk a little bit about 
your kind of upbringing. Uh, let's talk about where you grew up. Uh, I know you mentioned kind of like you always kind of had an idea or you thought about flying before, but you didn't take until 2020. Uh, so talk a little bit about racing, why you got into racing and kind of lead it up to, to where we are today. Yeah. So I, um, I grew up in, in Northern California. I had parents that weren't involved in motorsports in in any fashion, but they were just race fans. Right. So part of our Sunday morning, you know, family routine before going to church was we'd get up at four 30 in the morning, five in the morning and watch an F1 race. And so that kind of, I, I became attracted to the sport just because I was exposed to it, um, kind of as a, as a family thing. And then, um, couple that with every year, my father and I would take like a father son trip to, uh, Laguna Seca, which is in Monterey, California. And we'd go to the, what is now, it was called something else, but we go to the IndyCar races there. And we did that kind of every year from the age of three or four, all the way through, I was like 12 years old. And finally for my 10th birthday, I convinced my dad to let me kind of go to a go-kart school. And we saw the advertisement at Laguna. And so that was uh, my 10th birthday present. It was actually down in, in Vegas and it was a three day kind of sold to my mother as a, as a once in a lifetime opportunity. And then after that, you know, I obviously uh, love the experiences any 10 year old kid, I think would driving a go-kart. Um, and so kind of pestered my parents and I was fortunate that I was an only child. So I kind of got all of my parents' resources and, and attention. And uh, so, you know, we, we kind of went down the process. It was kind of a, a two-way agreement. You know, I had to keep up, you know, straight A's in school. If I did that, they'd pay for go-karts and we can go go-kart racing. And kind of the rest is history. I always had the, the ambition of, of getting to Formula One just because that was the, 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 the series and the, the side of the sport I was introduced to first. Um, so when the opportunity came up for me to move to Europe when I was 16, I did it. And I was there for, for eight years, um, made it to formula one briefly, um, in 2015. And then the team that I was driving for, uh, went out of business. Um, so with it went my job for 2016 and I was very fortunate that at that same time, um, a team back home in IndyCar was expanding from three to four cars and kind of got the, the call uh, to come be that fourth driver. And I didn't know much about IndyCar at the time. I obviously knew what it was, but I was single track focused on, on Formula One and um, came to IndyCar, was fortunate enough to win the 500 in 2016. And then that kind of established my career here um, in back in the States. And so now I've been in the series since then and joined um, Aaron McLaren last year. So that is kind of the racing story. Um, in terms of aviation, I was always one of those people that would get on the plane and find out what type of plane it was and then go on Wikipedia and hyperlink my way through everything from like its history, how it was, you know, developed the engines it was powered by, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it, at the same time as that, the, the formula one team that I was with for the longest period of time, one of their main partners was Rockwell Collins. So I got to meet a lot of people from the avionics side of things and hear their stories and, and everything about 
um, kind of the internals of planes, if you will. And so then um, 2020 happened for all of us. Uh, the race season was very delayed. I was sitting around the house bored. And so I was like, man, I've got the time and the resources to go do flight lessons. And so I started, fell in love with it. And um, as soon as I got my private pilot's license, I realized how useless that was. So immediately went into trying to get my instrument rating. And then um, someone that is a coach, so a driver that I race against, but also he owns a team in the series, had had his, had done all of his training, but had never gotten through his check ride. Um, and kind of my, he was a buddy of mine, is a buddy of mine. So I kind of, I think, inspired him to go finish. And then he kind of got re-addicted to it. And then him and I ended up buying a Piper Malibu together a year and a half ago. So um, went from never flying a plane to now owning one, which I don't know if that's a good financial decision, but here we are nonetheless. <laughs> Can't go wrong with buying an airplane. It's yeah, one of the yeah, best sure. things in the right? Yeah, it's yeah. your happiness. Not for yeah, your, your, boat, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, get a boat, get a plane, you know, you'll right. be fine. For sure. Um, when you uh, talk a little about when growing up, making that decision, because I think it's really interesting kind of on the racing side. A lot of, I mean, my, I know racing, I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. So NASCAR obviously, right. It's thrown right in my face. I've watched NASCAR my whole life. I didn't know F1 at all. I knew IndyCar. Then here comes that series on Netflix that everyone's watched. And I finally found out about F1. I've, I got into it, but it seems like everyone has been family driver. It's like, it's in the blood, right? It's in the family. It's not an easy sport to break into when you are the first one in your family. Talk about breaking barriers. Um, I don't know if barriers is the right word, but getting into a sport like that when it's got to be difficult when everyone else has the connections, the, the, the money, they have everything in place for them just to go. And you have to worry about all of it in one. Yeah, for sure. So, um, that's a, I could talk for a while about that, but I think, I think what a lot of people don't maybe realize or understand is that motorsports is one of, if not only, I would say the, the few, if not only, like I said, the few sports on earth where you can buy your way to the top. You know, you can't, I don't believe, become an NFL quarterback because your family can write a check to a team. Potentially, but I doubt it. Um, you, can't, you can't be on the U.S. Olympic team for track and field because your family writes a check or a company writes a check or a tourism board of a government writes a check. Motorsports is not like that. And it's, it's always existed um, to a certain extent because of how expensive it, it is like that. That's just one of the underpinnings and disadvantages to the sport is the cost of entry is very high. So what that means right away is, you know, some of the best racing drivers on earth may have never actually driven a car because their family didn't have the financial means to get them into the go-kart to get them developed and learning in the first place. So, so number one cost of entry is incredibly high. Then number two, these teams, is, let's take Formula One, for example, pre-cost um, cap, which only came in two years ago, um, pre-cost cap, they were spending six to $700 million a year for two cars to go drive around the track for 24 races, right? And you would have manufacturers, Mercedes-Benz, Ferrari, you know, Honda, BMW, whatever, that could write that off as an R and D expense. You know, there are these 
vehicle manufacturers that could actually pull technology that they were developing in Formula One and eventually transition that down to road cars. But then that's only half the grid in Formula One. The other half of the grid is private owners, right? And these guys maybe aren't spending $600 million a year, but they're spending two to $400 million a year, which is still a massive number. And I don't care how rich you are, after a certain point of time, writing that check gets old. And so if there is then a driver that has a sponsor or if there's a driver that has a country that is looking to advertise the tourism to that country, backing them, and they are willing to write a check that's 30, 40, 50 million dollars, the team's going to be hard pressed to be like, nah, right? So that's where you get into this difficult element of the sport where it is a sport, but it's also very much a business because these companies and these private people all still have a bottom line that they have to achieve and they have to hit. And the, and the sad thing about F1 is your ultimate results are a direct, they're a direct result of the car that you're in. You know, I think if we look at Formula One this year, it's very clear what I mean by that. You know, one team has won all but one race of 17 races, right? And that's not because Max is exponentially better than everyone. He's very good and he's still probably the best driver on the grid. But if you put Max in a Aston Martin, if you put Max in a Haas, right, he's not going to win any race, even though that he's the best driver on the grid. If you put Fernando Alonso in a Red Bull, he's going to win a lot of races. So because of that, these teams are more interested in taking drivers that have financial backing because they know that it's not really going to impact their overall result that they have at the end of the year. IndyCar is a very different scenario than that because while there's still a financial element that exists, the driver has a much bigger impact on the results of the season than just the car in general. But going back to kind of my story, it was very difficult as an American that didn't have the backing of a corporation, the backing of a country. And it was just my dad and I over there trying to kind of force our way in. And, you know, I was fortunate that I had some people that were very supportive of wanting to have an American in Formula One, because ultimately we see what the U.S. market is and what it's capable of generating. Every single manufacturer that's in Formula One, aside from Renault or Alpine, right? Their number one car sales are in the United States. So there's a lot of advantage to, to having an American presence. So that was kind of the one thing that I had going for me. Um, but ultimately, it wasn't enough to, to kind of completely cross that threshold and that barrier. Um, and that's why I think so many guys that are in Europe in Formula One, trying to get to Formula One, that are introduced to IndyCar, fall in love with this, fall in love with it because a you know, every single weekend you have a chance to win. And that's as, as a kid, what you, what you want. Right. And B the business aspect of it exists for sure, but it's, it's to a much smaller degree. And people here are generally here because they want to win races. They're not here because they're businessmen. They're not here because they're trying to make a buck, right? They're here because they're trying to be competitive and compete and, and, you know, be the best of everyone else. So I think that that's where IndyCar really excels. And, and you see that with the on-track product. I mean, you've got 
10 different winners throughout a season, which is obviously exponentially more than, than what Formula One is. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I started watching a little bit more of IndyCar, uh, when my buddy Kyle, he's like, dude, NASCAR, get over it, man. <laughs> it's yeah. time to watch IndyCar, watch F1. You like F1, you're like IndyCar. So I started watching, I agree. Uh, the competition is, it, when you know who's going to win every single race, it's not as exciting. I mean, exactly. I, it's just, it's just sports, right? Like it's, uh, it eventually gets boring. Um, I mean, it's still exciting. Uh, the buildup of it's cool, but IndyCar having the opportunity to see, you don't know what's going to happen. Like it, it's just really cool to watch and the cars are cool. The technology is still there. Um, and the tracks are great. I mean, you got the Indy 500, which I was going to ask as well. I mean, the way they, everyone looks at the Indy 500 as the greatest race in all of sports. Uh, I would argue that maybe some Europeans would say Monaco, but I mean, depending on who you ask, they might say the same thing. <laughs> they might say the Indy 500 as well. So it's, uh, Indy will always have that, the, the greatest race in sports. So it's really cool to have. And obviously yeah. to win that has to be amazing. Yeah. I think what Indy has over everything else is just the, the scale of it. Right. I mean, it's, it is the largest single day sporting event on earth, right? Like the world cup isn't one day. The Olympics aren't one day. The Super Bowl is a day. The Indy 500 is a day. Like the Indy 500 is more people. That's not to say that it's more popular, but ultimately the, the atmosphere and the experience that you get when you show up to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway on race day, on Memorial Day weekend, it's, it's pretty exceptional. And it's something that I encourage everyone to do once in their life because it, it'll change your perception of not only motorsports but a live sport as well um just because it's 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 part of the it's part of not only the state and the city but the people that are there like the amount of people that i've met that their tickets are handed down in wills like it is generational the the people that show up and have been sitting in the the same seats for 40 50 years um and when you have that sort of passion and commitment to a sport we as the, the athletes, you can really feel that. Um, and it's, it's really something special. So yes, I mean, that is obviously the, the, the shining highlight of IndyCar. Um, but at the same time, you know, we were fortunate in this standpoint that, you know, we race on four different types of tracks throughout the year, right? So you've got the 500, which is a super speedway. Um, we have short ovals. So, um, like Iowa Speedway, for example, is under a mile long. So it's seven eighths of a mile. Lap times are 17 seconds, average speed of 180 miles an hour. Um, then you have like street courses, which are through city streets. So you've got like Long Beach, Toronto, Nashville, et cetera. And then you've got, you know, your more permanent road courses, which is familiar to, you know, what F1 is like. Um, so the, the mindset and the philosophy that you have to take into each of those types of tracks is, is different. And so winning a championship is in IndyCar is really, it goes to the most complete driver and team, um, which is why it's, it's ultimately so difficult to win. Yeah, absolutely. And talk a little bit about when you're younger going to Europe. Um, what were you, 16, 17? Um, 16, right? Yeah. 16 yeah. uh family come with you they're like all right see you dude peace good luck we got you here but you're on your own go by yourself like what was uh the mentality of, of going over to a new country um kind of a, not a new sport but you know the big time right like yeah. this is what you always wanted excitement um i guess the main question was was it everything you thought it was going to be like did it live up to all of its potential or did you kind of leave you like wanting more like uh seeing what else is out there um 
So the first part of your question, yeah, I, I went over alone. My my father, my father comes to everything. So he would end I would end up seeing him every couple of weeks or sometimes back to back, right? Because he would commute um for the races. Um so it wasn't totally alone from that standpoint, but between race weekends, yeah, I was kind of on my own. Um and I would say that the first so I lived in in Prague. Um, for just under a year. And then I lived in Italy for two and a half years. And I lived in England for almost five. And the the first kind of three years in, in Prague and Italy were lost on me because I was an American teenager who was ultimately didn't care at the time about culture. Right. So I, I now regret not learning, you know, how to speak Italian. I would kind of just hang out with people that spoke English and play video games and go to the gym and do kid stuff right a 16 year old kid does right yeah. right exactly um but then and then from there i moved to england which obviously is very americanized in a lot of aspects it's it's different but it's it's pretty close to to the states um and i loved my time there and made a, a lot of phenomenal friendships and there's people that are still very special to me that are still back in england um but i would say but yes, it did live up to the expectations. Um, it was everything that I hoped it would be. And I look back on it with incredibly fond memories. You know, obviously there was challenging times on the motorsport side of things, dealing with politics and, and all that sort of thing. But when I look back now, as I was a 16-year-old through the age of 24, they got to live in Europe, race in essentially 21 countries throughout the year. Um the world got much smaller because there's places that, you know, I feel like I've been to don't need to go again. And there's places that, you know, I would love to, to visit again. So that they're kind of at the top of my list. So, um, from that standpoint, I, I knocked out a lot of travel, knocked out a lot of experiences. Um, so then when I came back to the States and now I've been here roughly for the same amount of time that I was over in Europe, um, you know, I, I feel like I've lived a pretty, pretty full life at the age of 31 already. So that, that's pretty awesome. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You've definitely seen a lot more things than the average 31 year old. Right. <laughs> I would argue. <laughs> sure. uh, even if it is just hanging out in Italy, playing probably FIFA on a video game. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> eat tons of pasta, but still better than what most of us are doing. So that's uh, yeah, I would say so as well. Let's take a break from today's episode to hear from our sponsor, RAA. Hey guys, Justin here. Did you know that more than 55% of adults don't protect their income with disability insurance? And for pilots like us, with fixed career limits and higher job risk, there's even more riding on missed benefits opportunities than most. But you can take control and full advantage of all valuable benefits your airline offers, starting with free benefit analysis from my partners at RAA. With your free benefits analysis, an advisor specializing in your airline's benefits plan will help tailor an election strategy that best fits your personal needs and goals, including retirement savings, investments, health savings accounts, healthcare and disability coverage, and more. Listen, your benefits aren't just protecting your health. They're critical to protecting your long-term wealth too. But open enrollment is approaching fast and only lasts for a limited time, just like this free benefits analysis offer. So don't wait. Schedule your free benefit analysis today at raa.com slash pilot to pilot. That's raa.com slash pilot to pilot. Now back to today's episode. Um, when you have the mentality of like, your goal your whole life was probably what F1 wanted to be world champion, right? When you finally, when you finally get there and you see, you know, everything around you, you're, you're the one on the grid that's getting into the car. You're not the one watching people get into the car anymore. What was that moment like? What, 
did it feel full circle where you're, you're just like, wow, like we really did this. We're on the grid that we always watch and always wanted to race. Yeah. So my debut was in, in Singapore, um, in 2015, the driver that, so they, that they, they traded me for a guy that, um, wasn't meeting kind of performance criteria or whatever. So it was kind of a last minute call. Um, I wasn't, I, I had a pretty good idea that I was going to be racing the F1 in 2016. Um, but I didn't think it would come when it did in 2015. So it was a little bit of a surprise. Like I found out on the Tuesday of the Singapore weekend that it was happening. Um, so it was a whirlwind for sure. The first one, just because it didn't really feel real. Um, it was awesome, but it was, it was a lot to take in initially. Um, but then kind of by the time that I got a couple races in and coming to Austin. So I was then, you know, an American on home soil, the first American to race in formula one in over a decade, the first American to race at Coda in an F1 car. That was a really special moment. Um, just because that, that was kind of the dream for a long time was to be an American representing the United States in America. And at the time, Austin was the only, the only race in the States. And so that was a very special weekend. Um, in, in a lot of ways, it ended up being kind of my best result in F1, uh, finished 12th, which for the team that I was driving for was, we were punching above our weight. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that was, that was very, very, very cool. Um, and, but it is funny how quickly, even though it's something that you've worked for your whole life and you've dreamt about that as soon as you're in that moment, it's immediately, it's hard to realize that, you know, you, you're just focused on your job and trying to perform to your highest level. Um, and so you don't really take time to kind of appreciate what's going on, which maybe is a good thing. Maybe is a bad thing, but you know, I still find myself in that situation now in IndyCar, like, even though you know, I've been doing it for, for a while, you know, you still kind of look at it, look at it as a job and, you know, the pressures to, to perform and succeed, um, sometimes outweigh the just overall joy of getting paid to drive race cars. Totally understand that. Yeah. <laughs> I could totally get that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, especially when you're dealing with politics, things out of your control can really take the love out of what you're doing very fast if you can let it. So for sure. Um, when, I always saw kind of these athletes that I was playing with at Ohio State. Um, you could, they had the most, they were the most gifted driver. You've probably seen this too. The most gifted drivers, most gifted athletes you ever see. But as every level you go up, there's a mental capacity that is required from you as you go up. And you can put it all together in, in go-karts um, or little league football. But as you keep going up, it gets harder and harder and harder to keep your mental capacity and be mentally tough enough to handle it. And I would assume that's very similar with what racing comes like. Everyone there can drive a car fast. Everyone there can drive a car well. But can you handle everything that comes with it and be in the moment, block everything out, just go? Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, racing is 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 more of a mental game, really, than anything else. Um, and part of the reason for that is you, if you look at you know a, a ball sport, for example, you know if you have a five hundred season, it's okay, not great. Like you're not really that pumped about it. Um, in racing, there's no one that's going to win. I mean, take away Formula <laughs> One, right? If you look yeah. at IndyCar or NASCAR or whatever, there's yeah. no one that's going to win 
half the races a year, right? right? So you have to find motivation from getting your ass kicked more than you can from, you know, the joys of winning and everything. Cause you might only win. I mean, I didn't win a single race last year, but you might only win two races a year, three races, one race a year. Right. And so the other 16, 17 races, like you got to find the, the drive and the passion from losing. Um, and so I think that's hard for some people, especially because that's not how it begins. Like in go-karts, if you're good, you're winning pretty much everything. The entry level race cars, it's kind of the same process. And then as you slowly take these steps closer to the pinnacle, whether that's cup, IndyCar, Formula One, whatever, those numbers drastically start dropping. And I think that that, that weighs on people more than others. Um, and then you try and, you know, overcompensate, you try and, and force things to happen when they shouldn't and you end up making more mistakes. And, and it's something that I've dealt with. You know, we, there's a lot of guys in racing nowadays, especially, but I've been working with a sports psychologist since 2015 um, to kind of help with managing not only all of that, but also, you know, we, if you look at a year is, you know, 365 days, we're only in the car 40, 35 to 40 days. Right. So you have to be mentally in the correct mindset every single time because your opportunity to prove yourself and to justify your job is pretty limited, right? You've got, it's called 35 shots a year um, to make an impression as to why you should be brought back the next year. Um, so you've got to be mentally ready to handle kind of all that comes with that. Definitely. And I think the reason I brought that up is because there is a parallel to that with the aviation side of when someone that wants to be a career pilot, uh, you love it, right? You're like you're, when you're in your training, all you're doing is looking up to that, you know, 737, that Airbus, uh, you're looking up to those big airplanes. And as you get closer and closer and closer to that, your love of it kind of draws away a little bit, whether it's a schedule, whether it's maybe the pays that we thought of, you get furloughed. Uh, there's a lot of things that kind of beat you down in your career in aviation and, and similar with racing, right? And you got to find why you love it. You got to remember the feeling. I always say you got to remember the feeling you had on your first solo when you're just like, we're ecstatic. This is the greatest thing in the world. Like I just flew an airplane by myself. Um, a lot of pilots lose that love and they lose it very fast once they start getting paid. It's actually really wild to see. Uh, and some of them don't find it. Uh, now that's doesn't necessarily make them bad pilots and it's not like racing where you're going to get kicked out and you only have limited uh, attempts to impress someone, but, uh, it, it happens more than you would think. And it's kind of crazy. Yeah. One of my very good friends. So he, he flew Blackhawks in the military and then, um, you know, finished his deployments, came back had a lot of hours that were obviously transferable to commercial flying if he wanted to. And, and so he kind of did, but he still had to, I mean, it was, it was several hundred hours that he had to fulfill to get his ATP. And he was like, man, this is miserable. Like he was just going up and doing laps of Indianapolis because he just had to tick off the time. Right. Um, and then he finally got into a regional airline and was like, this is pretty cool for the first couple months. And then quickly realized that it wasn't that cool. Um, and then fortunately found a job. Um, actually he, he moved out to, to Vegas with his family and is flying for frontier now and he loves it. So he found, he found it again, but it was interesting to kind of watch him for an 18 month period, kind of go through exactly what you said. Like it was, 
he thought this is everything that he wanted and then he hated it for a good year and then um, kind of found it again. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like anything in life, I think at the end of the day. Definitely. Yeah. It's real though. Like you gotta, you gotta find the motivation and figure out why you're doing it and money and, and travel privileges aren't going to get you there all the way. Exactly. For sure. <laughs> um, so let's talk about when you actually started making the decision to go fly. Yeah. Uh, 2020 pandemic's going on crazy time. You found yourself, like you said, with the resources and the time to go do this. I want to ask first, if there wasn't a pandemic, do you think we would be having this conversation right now? Do you think you would have actually done it? Or did you, did you always kind of see yourself taking this jump and make, becoming a pilot? Um, probably not. Not because, no, I, no, the answer is no. Because I was in Indy for four years prior to 2020 with arguably the same time and, and opportunity to do it. And it never crossed my mind. Um, and really I was looking for something to do because we didn't know when we were going to go back to, to racing again. So I think that if there's any positive for me personally, that came out of COVID, it was that it gave me the, the kind of push to, to go find this new passion, um, that, that I knew existed from just an airplane fascination standpoint, but not necessarily a flying standpoint, um, but yeah, certainly I, I think that it's, it, it needed all of those factors in order for me to kind of take that step. Yeah. And, and similar question to when you were, when I asked when you were going to F1, like did it live up to all your expectations? sounds like you were kind of like a quote unquote av geek when you're looking up the yeah, engines, you're yeah. looking up the planes, uh, when you're finally getting around a small 172 or a Sirius, whatever you did your training in, did the first f- couple of flights kind of live up to those expectations or did it leave you wanting more? Uh, no, it, it met every expectation. It was very frustrating how long it took to wrap my head around landing. Like it was, it was weird. Like my CFI was always like, it, as soon as you do it, like it'll, you'll never ultimately struggle again. Right. In terms of a basic, you know, non-crosswind landing or whatever. Um, and that's true, but it took, it took longer than I wanted for me to kind of get to that point. Um, I was blown away but then also very appreciative of the simplicity of ultimately what an airplane is. Like, I, I mean, it's, it's awesome, slightly concerning in some ways, but also makes sense like how basic and old the technology of the engines are. I mean, you know, I think what is it? Diamond is kind of the only one that's seemingly wanting to progress engine and airplane technology forward. But um, yeah, and the Cessna and Cirrus that I, that I trained in, it was like, wow, this thing's very, very basic. Um, but ultimately that's, that's where, you know, the reliability, I guess, comes from. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. But um, when you were doing the landings, what was it that was kind of messing you up? Do you remember? It was the the timing of like the flare and then, doing too much like then you get into that kind of oscillation of I was always okay with I think the the one advantage that I had from day one was being having very small inputs uh, because that's something that you need in a race car um, but like sometimes on landing do you need the bigger inputs right and so I was never using the the yoke or the rider pedals enough it was always just pressure i was putting on it i wasn't actually kind of like flying the airplane to the ground um so i i was always late to everything um because it's not because i was overcompensating it was actually because i was under controlling the aircraft um so kind of keeping 
the different phase of flights separate from my mindset of like, okay, these are where you can, your, your control parameter window is this versus this. Right. And, and kind of having that mental breakthrough was kind of the biggest thing that was the hardest for me. Do you have like one landing where it just like lives in your brain about how bad it was? And you're like, Oh my gosh, I can't no, hundred no, percent. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, it was, it was actually, it wasn't in any of the training planes. It was in, it was in my plane. Um, and so it was the first landing that I did. So the Cirrus is very light and very much wants to fly. And ultimately, you know, if you come in a little bit too quick, you can kind of just hold the nose up and it'll kind of just float to the ground and it's not a big deal. Right. Um, and there's not a whole lot of technique that goes into it. Um, whereas the, the Malibu being much heavier, um, and not quite as slippery, I guess. Um, I tried to do that same technique and the thing like this, the instructor just pushed the nose down. Cause like it was going to just essentially fall on its ass, um, <laughs> from about 70 feet in the air, I bet. So, uh, that one, that one sticks with me for sure. <laughs> I would have hurt. Yeah, don't do that anymore. <laughs> I don't think I have trailing link gear on that. Yeah, Even if it no, did, I don't know if that would. Save no, you. <laughs> I don't think that would work. Yeah. Uh, was there any? You mentioned when you were uh, getting into racing, there was a little bit of convincing on your side. Um, coming into flying, was there any convincing for your wife, for your family? It's like, are they like, dude, you have like three, two things already that are kind of dangerous. Like, it's right. not had a third one in here. Um, Kelly, my wife, didn't care. Uh, to this day, <laughs> she has not been awake for a flight that we've been on. She just immediately goes to sleep. Um, even last night, we flew down to Nashville to surprise my dad for a birthday dinner. She slept both ways. Um, Amazing. Which is very is that annoying. out of stress or is that no. just because she just goes to sleep on planes? Uh, she just yeah, she's pretty relaxed about it. Um, my dad, less so. He and I actually flew from. The first time I flew with him was from Teterboro down to Nashville and he hated every minute of it. Um, so that, that, and he was always kind of nervous about me doing it, but like, ultimately I'm an adult so I can do what I want. But I don't think the, that experience, it was a completely smooth flight, but that didn't help sell him on it. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, those are the only two people that I really care about their opinion um so it's split 50 50 <laughs> that's hilarious yeah. i love every watch like whatever yeah, doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's sure. funny uh you mentioned teterboro um i fly i'm a corporate pilot fly teterboro all the time what, what are your thoughts on teterboro you love it hate it no one, there's no one that's in the middle it's just like eh, it's an airport you either love teterboro or you hate teterboro um i i did not like it um i was i was I was very impressed. I was very impressed with kind of the Tracon controllers. I was very impressed with all the other pilots. Um, I, to this day, don't think I'll ever fly an approach as fast as I did then. Um, but that part was fine. Like it would have been pretty, it, it, I mean, it's a lot. I would never do it again, single pilot, if it was not my VFR day, um, for sure. Um, but it was the, the thing that makes me never want to fly there again was getting out. Um, I did not have any concept of what that was going to be. And I should have got a clue when he, I had to call for a taxi clearance before I could even turn on the airplane. Um, 
had never done that before and thought, okay, well, there's busy airport. Proceeded to sit for 50 minutes. Um, and that sucked. So yeah, I don't think, I don't think I'd do it again. It's not that convenient. So sounds like Tito bro. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it might be closer to the city, but <laughs> well, I've, also, I've also never had, so I, um, got like a, a route amendment and man, oh. it was two and a half pages. <laughs> like fixes. And I was like, this is absurd. Um, because especially as soon as you got out of the airspace, they just took you direct anyways. But, um, yeah, it was, it was cool. It was cool to take the box. Uh, but yeah, don't have the desire to do it. Again. That's hilarious. Yeah. Tita bros. It's a special place, man. It's uh it's a lot all in one. And you, you kind of nailed it in the head, right? Like the best controllers in the world. Like if you just listen to what they do, read back what they say, you're going to be fine. But as soon as you have any doubt, they're going to chew you apart and, and, kill you on the radio right. so it's, yeah. uh, it's funny to listen to um when you're not the first one going in there getting yelled at but um it's a cool place it's yeah. interesting for sure for sure it was funny because like they i actually played it back so they forgot to or maybe maybe you're supposed to but i've never had it anyways they didn't tell me to switch to the tower um so i didn't and then finally i asked like i'm like on a two and a half mile final can i please and they're like yes and so then as soon as I switched, they were calling the tower was trying to raise me and they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah cleared to land next time, you know, talk to us sooner. And I was like, well, I don't know if that's my fault. Maybe it is. But yeah. That's the yeah. one where you just take it, you yeah. land and you just, yeah, it was no big deal. Yeah. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. Approach that told you to go over there. That's right. not on you. I'll, I'll back you up. On Thanks, that. Man. Yeah. Thanks man. Like Justin from pilot to pilot. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get you nowhere. Um, when you were, when you were looking into flying, People, a lot of times, think it's very hard to get into. They don't realize that it's literally going to whatever airport you're closest to and just saying, I want to fly. And they're like, oh, cool. We got a plane right here. You can go in an hour if the schedule works out. You want to go? Like, it's literally what it is. Was that what it was like for you? Did you do a lot of research? Did you try to find the best of the best? Like, what was your mindset going through that? No, I just, uh, honestly, I Googled flight schools in Indianapolis. And the one I ended up at was the first one that popped up. Um so I literally that day called and was like, I want to fly airplanes. They're like, cool. Can you be here at two? Sure. Exactly. Filled out the paperwork and did the, what is it called? Um, it's not the introductory, whatever it is. Like, it's your flight. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I was stunned because he was like, yeah, get in the left seat. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, uh, me, are you sure? And he was like, okay, like you can take off. And I was like, I don't, I don't think that I can. Um, but yeah, it was from that moment. I was like, okay, like sign me up. I like that guy. What do I need to do? And I, um, I think started that week. The amount of stuff that they kind of throw at you, not throw necessarily throw at you, but what you do on an intro flight will, will shock the average person. It's like, you are, you are flying. Um, either they're guiding you through the takeoff or if they feel comfortable enough and they know that they can save it, then they're just going to watch you kind of struggle it out yeah. and get it off the ground. But you, you will fly a good 30 minutes on that. Yeah, just flying around. Pretty wild. Was not expecting yeah. it, but it's awesome. It's very, very cool. And, and yeah, like you said, people don't realize, um, and I'm going to take credit for two separate people, um, going and then getting their pilot's license after I told them how a awesome it is and b like, generally easy for lack of a better word it is to kind of get started yeah 
which is crazy because like I said, a lot of people think it's really hard. You need to be really smart. You need to take all the exams. Like, no, dude, like literally just call and give them 150 bucks and they will take your money <laughs> and sure. let you go fly. For sure. <laughs> yeah, you got to pay before though. You can't pay after. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, when you, the mindset you had with this when you got into it, was it like, oh, just like you said, I think you said before, you didn't realize that the private can be kind of useless uh, with what you want to do. Um, you didn't know that going into it. So did you think, all right, I'm just going to do my private, that's it, and I'll just fly whenever I want? Yes, for sure. Um, you know, part of the motivation was like, oh, in a perfect world, um, I'll fly myself to races. In a perfect world, you know, I, I have two dogs and they come to quite a few of the races. So like I can take them. You, when we had one dog, we kind of did the whole commercial airline emer- emotional support animal thing harder to do with two dogs. Um, so it was like, this is a way for me to find my dogs to races, find myself to races. Great. And then I, I'm crying in the <laughs> exactly. And then I very quickly got, um, delayed multiple days, uh, because of weather. And I was like, this is stupid. Um, so immediately started the, the instrument kind of course, which is much better, obviously. Um, but then it comes with a whole nother set of, of potential issues that you got to think about. So there's no free lunch. What was, um, doing your instrument training. It's like a different language, right? Like you learn how to fly one way. It takes you a while to figure it out. You get it down and then you get an instrument. It's like, you got plates, you got people talking to you. You got to figure out how to hold, you got to figure out, you got to read a bunch of stuff. You know, you got to put the big picture together. There's a lot going on that you need to know everything that you're being asked of and will soon be asked of to, to kind of have the safest flight you can have. Was that difficult for you or was instrument pretty easy? Um, I would say the hardest part was the, was visualizing the holds, right? You know, I was flying at that point with G1000, right? So it's very straightforward, but you obviously can't do that. Like you have to know how to do it with radials and such. So um, that was the hardest part for me, mostly because like, you know, I, I didn't grow up with a map that was the hardest part on the private as well is like dead reckoning. Like that was, that was tough to kind of figure out what a compass is and how do you use it and and all that sort of thing. Um, But then from the other side of it, in terms of approaches and talking to controllers and everything, that's where the racing side of things really, I think helps because so much of what we do in the car, the driving part is, is subconscious, right? And then your conscious mind, if you will, is thinking about, who you're racing, the strategy that you're on, the balance of the car throughout a stint, the fuel mileage you're trying to get, the changes you're going to make to the car, how weather is changing and how that's going to affect the performance of the car. So that sort of thing was a very easy transition of like, okay, I can, I can really fly without thinking about it and can then use my actual brain to think about, you know, how to set up an approach and who I'm talking to and what my altitudes are and, and all that sort of thing. So that, that came fairly easily once I learned how to read kind of what an approach plate was. <laughs> once you learn how to read. Yeah, That's exactly. good, yeah. yeah, no approach plates, man. They can be, there's a lot of information on there. <laughs> You're like, wait, yeah, what is it's all this important. Man? Yeah. yeah. And shout out to Garmin, right? G1000. I don't know how people flew without those avionics before. I mean, I started with the steam gauges, but I had Garmin pilot to help me out on my iPad and that was a, a game changer. But now the avionics I have and the citation latitude that I fly, we have a G5000, the, the full FMS suite, and it's got like three big screens. It's amazing. Same. You get lost in that thing, you're an idiot. Yeah. Like, it's just yeah. like, <laughs> uh, it, it's unbelievable. Uh, Garmin has definitely helped change aviation for the better and it's made 
a lot safer. Yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah. hundred percent. It's, um, it's amazing. Like the, the capacity that it has, if you know how to use it, like it's, it's pretty phenomenal. And, and the, I kind of compare it to Apple, right? Like what they've done from just an intuitive standpoint, like it's, it's, it's very impressive. It's no easy feat. Totally agree. And I have to give you a shout out for your pod. You have a podcast on Sirius XM, right? Yes. Yes, I do. It's, uh, it's called off track with Hinch and Rossi. Um, Love it's, it. it's, uh, two racing drivers that talk about the perils of everyday life. So it's sometimes it. interesting. Not really. Sirius XM sponsors my podcast. So I had to shout that out Sweet. as well. I'm actually getting ready to get on a call with them. Oh, yeah. we finish with us. <laughs> we're, we're tying it all together. Great. Um, for when you're flying, how often do you find yourself listening to Sirius XM? Do you have like a, a go-to or you listen to racing or you listen to country music? Like what do you listen to? Dude, I haven't gotten, I haven't gotten there yet. I haven't yeah? gotten to the point where I'm relaxed enough to listen to music. So no way. Yeah, That's crazy. I'm still, I'm still like staring at, you know, cylinder head temps and looking at airports that I'm potentially <laughs> going to land at. So. <laughs> that's good. Uh, you'll get there. Yeah, yeah. One day, one day. <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. Um, kind of interesting with your taking your check rides, right? There's a lot of butterflies. There's a lot of like the unknown of what they're going to ask. Would first of all ask, what was the hardest check ride you've taken so far? Instrument or private? Private was the hardest. Right, private was hardest. Yeah. And then going into this, your first time taking a quote unquote check ride, like I'm sure you had like racing tests or racing or things that you had to do, but would you say you were more nervous for your private or your instrument than kind of any of your races that you've had? Or would you think you're, you're more nervous when you go into for the Indy 500 or before um, your first formula one race? Yeah, I was, I was more nervous for my private check ride than I've been in a very long time. Um, just because like, I, I think at that point I was at 46 hours or something. And so it was, it was, I still was thinking about everything that I was doing, right. There was nothing that was totally natural yet. And so there was so much brain capacity that was just focused on like trying to do the things that I had practiced for the preceding four months or whatever it was. Um, so I was nervous about like, well, what happens if he does, if he asks something that like, I don't, I don't know how to do or any, so that, that sort of thing was the hardest part. By the time I got to the instrument side of things, it was kind of more the nerves of the race that I have. Like, I know what I'm doing. I know how to fly the plane. I've done this X amount of times. Like, let's just have a normal situation. Let's not have any variables kind of thrown into that. Um, but yes, the, the first, the first check ride was, I didn't eat that morning. I don't think I slept that night. Like it was, it was yeah. all the typical things you read about. Um, and ultimately the oral portion ended up being, um, the, the, uh, the easiest, um, oh, nice. which was cool, but yeah, I was, I was still very nervous about it all. Yeah, it's like that first question. Like, you don't know what they're going to ask, how they're going to ask it. Is this guy cool? Is he yeah. going to be a jerk? Like, there's so yeah. many things going through your head. It's like, well, did I answer that fully correctly? Like, should I say more? It's like, no, less is more. Yeah. Like, don't ever say more than you need to say. Well, exactly. So it's interesting because I had I had the same um, uh, DPE for both. And he hammered me really hard on kind of the oral for the private, but all about things that I knew about. Um, so while it was stressful and long, it ultimately was like pretty straightforward. 
for the instrument, it was more him just like he would, he started off and I feel like I got like the first three or four questions. Right. And so he was like, all right, he's fine. And then spent the next hour just telling me stories and giving advice on like his experiences he's had and like what definitely not to do. And I kind of just sat there and nodded and then he was like, all right, cool. Let's go fly. And I was like, is that, is that all? That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's like almost as important. Kind of goes back to what we're saying where you learn from other people's mistakes or you learn from other people's kind of advice. And I mean, that's sometimes can be more beneficial than anything. And what a lot of people forget is that a check ride can be a learning experience too. Like you can learn stuff and not fail. Uh, you don't have to know everything. You just have to know where to find it. Or, uh, I mean, there can be, even be some stuff you don't know. They might be asking questions just to test your knowledge at some point if the check ride's going really well. Now, obviously, if you're missing like every question, it's probably not going to go well. But <laughs> you can miss a couple questions if you can find it in a book or if you can kind of back it up in some way. Yeah, but, the, um, the worst the worst thing that he would do is like, I'd answer a question and he'd be like, you sure? He'd be like, <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah, no, yes, no, yes. Um, and most of the time when he did that, it was like, he was trying to get me to like second. So it, it goes back to the thing, like you can't second guess yourself. Like, you know, the information stick to your first kind of gut instinct. And that's, that's usually the correct one. Yeah, you could be 100% dead right. And they go, are you sure? And you're like, oh, shoot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> no, I go, that's good. That's right. And yeah. a lot of times I don't even really say if it's right. They just move on to the next mm-hmm. question. You're like, wait, was I right? right? Like, give me something. For please. sure. For sure. Oh, man. What's been your favorite flight you've had so far? Um, favorite flight. So it was probably the, I don't know if it was the favorite because it was fairly, I mean, I don't want to say stressful, but like, it, it required some focus. It was going to from Indy. So my, my wife's family lives in, she's Canadian. So she lives in Toronto. And so it was a full IMC winter flight, um, down to minimums in Toronto over the lake with ice. And I mean, it was just, it was, it was all of it. Um, and so kind of landing, it was like, it was, it was rewarding. Right. Cause it was like, this is what, I trained for this is what I bought this plane for and it has the capabilities to to fly in these conditions um and it was it was a lot of conversations I actually had with my CFI before I went and did the flight and he was like man like I'm fine with you if you're fine with it I'm fine with you doing it because you've done x y and z and we've done x y and z and everything's gonna be all right um but that was that was kind of also the farthest that I've you know, push my minimums. And I think it defined what my minimums are and probably wouldn't, I probably wouldn't do it again. Um, to that, to that extent, especially now that you're, because I'm not doing the instrument training so much, you're not flying as much or it's, you're not flying approaches as much, I would say. And I think that there's so much to be said for, you know, they often talk about in the beginning, like the difference between currency and proficiency and, and all this sort of thing. And that's a, that's a real thing. Right. Um, so certainly like going into this winter, when we're going to go up there, um, you know, if I'm going to, if it's going to look anything like that, you know, I'm certainly going to go up with the CFI for, you know, several days, if not a couple of weeks in advance to, to make sure that, all the boxes. Highly are, recommend that. All the boxes are ticked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like you said, there's a big difference between currency and proficiency, and there's nothing worse you can do than get uncomfortable in a situation in the clouds and kind of know how you're going to react. Right. So, so um, the last thing I was going to say to that is uh, the other thing that 
um, on that topic that really sticks with me and I think about a lot is, you know, this was the first CFI and the older guy. He was like, you will always, like, you will never, you'll always want to wish that you're on the ground or sorry, wish that you're in the sky from the ground, then want to wish you're on the ground from the sky. And like, I think about that often. It's like, man, that's, there's no truer words than that. Have you had a flight that you've been like, dang, I probably should not have done that. Or you, you feel pretty good about all your flights so far. Um, Don't incriminate yourself either. No, <laughs> not, no. I, I think the only thing in hindsight was, so I took a rental Cirrus from Indy to um, a race in kind of Northeast Wisconsin. Okay. And I... Chicago airspace, they wouldn't let me fly above it on for obvious reasons. Um, so they were kind of like, do you want to go west or east? And so I was like, well, east is way shorter. So I was over the lake for like 50 minutes, 45 minutes. And like, I, I didn't like it. So that was the one where I was, I probably regret not taking the extra 20 minutes and going west. Um, if I was in a a twin or obviously a turbine or my, even my own plane. Like I probably wouldn't have the same feeling, but because it was a rental plane that I really had no idea about. And I was over very cold water for such a long period of time. Yeah. I only got a couple more questions for you. Um, what would you say is your end goal with aviation right now? Like if you could have your dream, um, let, let's just say racing is coming to ten. You're getting ready to hang it up. Um, you're getting in aviation. Um, are you going to continue at all? Like, do you see any path where, like, do you love it enough to want to do it? Like, to be a professional pilot? Well, I say professional, you can still be a professional pilot, but like, fly for corporate airlines. Uh, do anything like that, or uh, is this something that you want to do on your own and, and maybe get into jets? Uh, kind of see how far you can take it personally. I think it's one of those things where, like, I I, I very much buy into the once you kind of collect a star you want to keep getting them so like i'm i'm down the road of getting my commercial not for any reason of wanting to a charge people or fly <laughs> for hire but just because like i want to get the next kind of box ticked like i want to get my seaplane rating just because so i think i'm just going to try and see how far i can take it um most certainly kind of the the, the big short dish term goal is to get into um you know a tbm or a Meridian or something like that, just to get out of the the piston planes. But as you well know, and, and I think a lot of people know listening to this, you don't want to go from a Cirrus or 172 into something like that. Also, insurance companies really won't let you. So that was kind of the, the point of, of buying the Malibu, you know, being a PA-46, like it's a very familiar airframe to a lot of those kind of um, six passenger turbines. So I think that's the next step just from a performance and safety standpoint. Um, so we're looking to do that maybe next as early as next year. So that can be pretty cool. Yeah. And don't sleep on the PC 12, man. Your wife will appreciate the back of a PC 12. I don't know that I have, I don't, I don't like enough people to need a plane of that size. I'm going to be honest <laughs> with you. Fair enough. That's actually the most relatable thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, a good answer. Yeah. yeah good answer. Yeah. She can sleep anywhere. Exactly. Right? She's yeah, sleeping yeah. She'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome, man. Um, I think that's really all I got for you. Um, is there anything else that you want to touch on or say or um, no, anything else? No, you got I me? just, uh, I, I love, you know, the world of, of aviation, the people that I've met, you know, it's amazing the people that you meet at FBOs when you're 
you know, waiting for whatever and um, hearing stories from other pilots. And, you know, I spend way too much time on kind of forums, reading about people's experiences and watching YouTube videos of obviously difficult situations that people have been in. Um, and it's just a, it's a fascinating world to me that have some amazing people. So it's been a pleasure to meet you and um, so, yeah, thanks for having me on and, and look forward to, to meeting more people along the way. You need to make it up to Oshkosh one year and go to the air show. I did go last year for a day. Oh, really? Um, but I was with a buddy who was purchasing a TBM actually. Um, so we were in and out, but I definitely want to go next year for more than six hours. So. Yeah. No, um, dude, two to three days, anything more than that might be a little bit yeah. too much, but two, three days, that's gotta, a sweet gotta spot. Got to camp at least one, one night. Sure. Yeah. Got to camp or get your Airbnb early because it goes fast. I'm sure Lauren can tell you all about it. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, she can get you in touch with me. Uh, we can meet up or something. Awesome, if you ever do go, yeah. there's some good food down there. Beautiful. Um, Wisconsin food, but yeah. Uh, thanks man. I appreciate coming on the podcast. It's really cool. Racer, racing drivers, uh, and aviation and just seeing, I mean, honestly, it's how many people love aviation and how many different people are in it, whether it's actors, race car drivers, normal everyday person, professional pilots, everyone has looked up to the sky at some point, but like, that's pretty cool. I could do that. You know? So it's, it's really cool to see, get more drivers doing it because I'm sure they'd all love it. They just need the time to do it. So it's, I'm putting on you to get every driver to be a pilot. All right, man. I've gotten, I've gotten uh, one and a half so far. So I'll, all right, there we I'll go. All right, cool, man. Well, uh, like I said, I appreciate your time and good luck this next season coming up. And uh, got a new IndyCar driver to root for. So uh, don't let me down, all right? I'll do my best. (laughs) Thank you. All right, Alex. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. That's a wrap on episode 292 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And like that RAA ad, it is open enrollment. So make sure you check out your companies open enrollment plans. If you have any questions, hit up RA. They're the pros. Aviation, I hope you're having a great day. And as always, happy flying. Pilot the Pilot LLC is compensated to make recommendations to his or her followers regarding the services of RAA or Allworth Airline Advisors, companies of Allworth Financial, LP, or Allworth. Promoter is not an employee or investment advisor representative of Allworth. Promoter is a current client of Allworth. Allworth-based promoter fee of $4,000 a month for sponsorship of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Due to the compensation arrangement between Allworth and Promoter, Promoter has an incentive to recommend Allworth resulting in material conflict of interest. Promoter's role on behalf of Allworth is limited strictly to making recommendations regarding the services of Allworth, introducing or referring prospective clients to Allworth. Promoter has no responsibility with respect to Allworth's investment advisor or other advisory services.